This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. On May 9th, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., also known as Bong Bong Marcos, won the presidential election in the Philippines. And after we vote, we uh, go here to support and wait for the result. And now we won 20 million plus votes for BBA. His vice president is Sarah Duterte, the daughter of outgoing president Rodrigo Duterte. Marcos Duterte, Marcos Duterte, Marcos Marcos Jr. is the son of former dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. And this landslide win is an extraordinary comeback for the family. They were ousted in a people's uprising in 1986 and forced to flee to the U.S. Marcos Sr. and his wife, Imelda Marcos, were accused of stealing billions of dollars from the country, of violently cracking down on dissent, and detaining and torturing thousands of Filipinos. And this week's victory comes after decades of rebranding. For survivors of the Marcos regime, the results are devastating, a sign that the country's forgetting both the dictatorship and the revolution that ended it. This week, I'm talking to Bonifacio Ilagan. He's a filmmaker, playwright, and was a member of the anti-Marcos senior resistance. He was detained and tortured for two years for his opposition. I'm going to talk to him about his story, how he finds himself fighting the Marcos family once again, and why his generation is still working to make sure Filipinos know the truth of what happened. And a warning, some of the details you'll hear are graphic and disturbing. I'm Tamara Kandacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Bonifacio, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wanted to start with your thoughts and reaction to the election of Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Now that you've had a little bit of time to process, how do you how do you feel about it? It's, it's unbelievable. I thought I was ready for anything, but when it came to this, uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. So this was a, a landslide win, uh, despite what looked like a lot of energy and optimism around Lenny Robredo, who was the distant runner-up. She was the progressive candidate, um, also the vice president with Rodrigo Duterte. What's happening on the ground right now since the election? The protest uh, movement has started. This morning, uh, the youth and the students uh, marched to the Commission on Elections in downtown Manila. They are camping out in a public square 
uh, in Manila together with the uh, peasant organizations and the urban poor organizations mm -hmm. and hope to stay put for as long as uh, it is needed. Never again! People here have not conceded. I don't think they will ever concede. Uh, and, um... I want to give our listeners a sense of what a big deal this is. I think a lot of our listeners might not know anything about the Marcos Sr. dictatorship. This was the father of Marcos Jr., who just became president. But you're someone who lived through it. And in the lead up to the election, uh, there were a lot of conflicting narratives in the Philippines about what that time was like. But I wonder if we can just start by setting the record straight a little bit. What was life like for most Filipinos under Marcos Sr. from what you remember? Contrary to what the son of the dictator is saying now, those years were not the golden years. In fact, Filipinos suffered much. There was uh, widespread impoverishment, social services were lacking, and graft and corruption characterized uh, governance to the point that in mid-1975, government did encourage Filipinos, especially those who were unemployed, to go out of the country and seek the proverbial greener pastures abroad. And this was the government's approach while Ferdinand Marcos Sr. and his wife Imelda, who was also a really powerful political force in the Philippines, they were notorious for living a very lavish lifestyle, right? Having these extravagant palace parties. Imelda Marcos famously had a collection of 3,000 pairs of shoes about the shoes. Uh, Imelda says that it is an exaggeration. It's not 3,000 pairs. It's only 2,775. Oh, okay. <laughs> First lady, I have to flaunt, practically flaunt love and beauty so that uh, the 50 million Filipinos will see what is to love and what is to positively feel and what is perfection. It is a uh, part of uh, my um, commitment, I suppose. I've always claimed to be some kind of a soldier for beauty and a soldier for love. Yes, there was a big, big contrast. The Marxists were uh, wallowing in wealth uh, while the population was living in utter hunger and uh, deprivation. And that was the reason, in fact, why I was drawn into the movement that eventually defined my life. Uh, workers were going on strike, the urban poor were begging in the streets, the peasants had no land to till that they could call their own. So I, first it was academic curiosity, and then eventually I got attracted to join organizations. What kind of political activity were you involved in? What exactly were you doing around that time? Well, we got into organizing students out of school youth, you know, all sectors. And we went out to the streets. We marched because we, we thought we had to do that to tell our people and the world about what's happening in the Philippines. And we particularly targeted Ferdinand Marcos Sr. That was mm -hmm. 1969 and 1970. By yeah. 19. 
1970, the movement had really erupted into one big phenomenon, movement. So this movement uh, is growing, and then Marcos declares martial law in 1972. He said it was in response to the threat posed by the Communist Party and, and a Muslim independence movement. I have received hundreds and hundreds of telegrams from all corners of the Philippines congratulating you and incidentally me for the proclamation of martial law, for the sudden cessation of anarchy and of criminality throughout the land. And, of, uh, and the military then did his bidding for about a decade. And during his dictatorship, there were around 70,000 people who were detained, 34,000 people who were tortured, over 3,000 killed, according to Amnesty International. And, and you were one of the people who was detained and tortured. Tell me about what happened to you. I had joined the resistance movement, the underground, even before Marcos Sr. declared martial law. I was into media work because the, the media was heavily censored. We came out with alternative uh, publications. And in 1974, uh, the military intelligence got wind of uh, our whereabouts and raided uh, the house that we were staying in. That was, I, I started, I, I experienced torture for most of my stay in prison. What kind of conditions were you kept in? What did they, what did they want to know from you? The torture was brutal. We were dehumanized. They impressed upon us that they could kill us. I was 23. They wanted me to tell on my comrades. They wanted me to decode the documents that they exist from me, identify pictures, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when I refused, they did all sorts of uh, torture. Uh, yeah. They punched me, they slapped me, they kicked me, they inserted bullets between the fingers of my hands and squeezed my hand so tightly that I thought my bones would crack. Um, they applied hot iron to the soles of my feet. Wow. They, they also asked me to put down my trousers and underwear and inserted a, a stick through my penis. In, in the course of the torture, I more often than not cried and pleaded with them. And I would exclaim and call God. And they would laugh and say, said, why are you calling God? Are you not a communist? Hmm. Communists do not believe in God. That's horrifying and really hard to, to hear. I can't imagine how hard it is for you to talk about these details. So I really appreciate you being so open. 
I, I know your sister also disappeared around that time. And uh, what do you know about what happened to her? Shortly after I was released, I met with my sister. I hesitated because uh, she was in the underground. She was an activist like me. She told Boney that she was in trouble, that a number of her associates had disappeared and that they needed a place to hide. He told her he'd try to help and they scheduled another meeting, but this time she didn't show up. We looked for her, the military denied having her in custody, found out that she, together with nine of her friends, they were all abducted by a special intelligence unit. Two of the 10 were found in a ravine in Tagaytay, their bodies badly mutilated. Another one was exhumed in a common grave in Quezon province. But to this day, to this day, you have no idea what actually yes, happened to Yes, yes. Despite the danger that came with pushing back against the Marcos regime, the detentions, torture, and killings, the movement Boney was part of kept growing through to the 1980s. The Marcoses could no longer cover up what was happening in the Philippines. There was poverty all around, and people were feeling the crunch and starting to voice out their sentiments. Martial law illegalized worker strikes. The workers went on strike nevertheless. Little by little, Filipinos learned uh, how to resist. The civil unrest in the Philippines also started to get a lot of attention in the foreign press. There has been another riot in the Philippines. It started when about a thousand people gathered in the streets of Manila for a protest march. Police ordered them And the, the president, President Marcos, was very sensitive to criticisms. And uh, one day, a foreign journalist uh, asked President Marcos if he still had the support of the people. Of course, in his usual braggadocio, he said, of course, I have always had the support of the people. In fact, right now, I am going to declare a snap election. Filipinos are not known to be good losers. They're always our great uh, losers. and They never concede. But uh, in this particular matter, uh, Ted, I am so certain of victory. The snap election of 1986 was between Marcos and Cory Aquino. She was the widow of Ninoy Aquino, an opposition politician who had been assassinated three years earlier. And Marcos won, but international observers said that there had been widespread fraud by Marcos supporters, and 30 of the workers at the vote-counting agency walked out. They accused the government of rigging the vote in Marcos's favor. From that time on, there was no way but for the Marcos dictatorship to slowly but surely crumble. There were senior members of the army that rebelled against him as well, right? Which was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Yes, even the military knew that everything was going bad. They thought they could manage a coup, a mutiny. But Marcos got wind of the plot. The would-be mutineers were cornered in a camp. And from then on, uh, they called out for 
public support, and the public came. The defense minister of the Philippines and the second in command of the army are holed up in a fort surrounded by friendly troops demanding that Marcos resign. The fort is surrounded by civilians also, including women, Catholic priests, nuns, supporting the mutiny. Marcos and that started what people all over the world know as the EDSA People Power Uprising. So that, that was four days of mass protests. What, what do you remember about those days? What was the energy like on the streets? Oh, it was euphoric. It was like a fiesta. People came out in droves and, you know, families from all walks of life. And they were bringing their families to the streets and stayed around the camp for days and nights on end. The president immediately announced a curfew would be imposed but crowds stayed out in the streets throughout the night once more to defy his orders. I'm willing to die for Filipino democracy. And so eventually the Marcoses were forced to leave and they fled to Hawaii. And that's where uh, Ferdinand Marcos Sr. died a few years later. But how did they get out? How did they manage to escape to Hawaii? Well, Uncle Sam came in handy. The United States flew helicopters to the palace and allowed the Marcoses to escape. Marcos escaped with uh, his family and his cronies, at least the cronies that were closest to him, his military loyalists, they were a big, uh, <laughs> a big delegation. And they brought with them loads, boxes of cash, jewelry, banknotes. It was reported today that Marcos and his group arrived in Honolulu carrying large amounts of cash, gold, and valuables, and that more items, including land titles and stocks, arrived today from the Philippines. The Marcos family has always denied allegations that they stole any money or that they were hiding any wealth. Here's Marcos Sr. in 1986. I deny categorically any speculations uh, uh, of uh, the uh, corruption and hidden wealth that is being alleged, so much so. But the Presidential Commission on Good Governance in the Philippines, which has been working on investigating and recovering the Marcos family's wealth, has estimated that they plundered billions. $10 billion in 1986. And in 2003, uh, our Supreme Court decided that the legitimate income of uh, the spouses Imelda and Ferdinand Marcos was only $304,000. That's unbelievable. This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, 
six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go back to talking about this election. So earlier this week, Marcos Sr.'s son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., won the election by a landslide, which means that 36 years after his family was ousted by the people, they're somehow back in charge. How did this happen? I know they were allowed back into the Philippines in the 1990s, but how did they pull this off? A lot of factors contributed to what is happening now. In 1986, there was that big, that broad united front that ousted uh, the Marcoses. That uh, united front included opportunists who were politicians, business people, who after the Marcoses had fled, they went back to their merry ways, trying to reclaim what they had lost during the Marcos dictatorship. So they forgot all about the responsibility of uh, ensuring that the lessons of martial law were taught. Our Department of Education did not see to it that the textbooks contained what was truthful and what was accurate in depicting the martial law years. Mm -hmm. And then the Marcoses found their way to get in touch with their old friends and facilitated their slow, their gradual, but sure uh, return. First, it was one member of the family, another member of the family, and then they were all back. Finally, the remains of the father was also back. Duterte allowed the remains to be buried at the Heroes Cemetery. The Marcos family over the years have gradually been re-establishing themselves. It's thought they've used that growing influence to help Rodrigo Duterte win the presidency and that him now allowing Ferdinand Marcos a hero's burial is political payback for that. The Marcoses were not only able to go back to the Philippines, but were able to run for public offices. The Filipinos were very merciful, allowed them to go back to run for public offices. And I know in recent years, they've been super active on social media and working to rebrand themselves and their family's legacy. What have they been saying? You touched on this earlier, but what have they been saying? And what are some of the ways that history is being rewritten on social media? They, they use social media to the max to circulate their false narratives, their lies. They sensationalized their stories and made it look like they were the victims mm. and made it look like th- what they were trying to tell now were uh, re- incidents that the people did not know because media hid everything. So if you look at social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, they're flooded with pro-Marcos content. And a lot of it counters well-substantiated allegations against the Marcos senior dictatorship. For example, denials that he ever stole money from the Philippines and claims that the Marcos family inherited wealth that's going to be redistributed. On April 9, 1973, Marcos said, My earthly goods have been placed in the custody and for the disposition of the Marcos Foundation, dedicated to the welfare of the Filipino people. 
claims that he presided over a really prosperous period for the country. We cannot deny the fact that there are some people believe that his administration was the golden age of the Philippines. There's also much weirder stuff. A new leader shall rule the pearl of the Orient Islands in Asia. Like a claim that the French astrologer Nostradamus predicted a Marcos Jr. presidency back in the 1800s. These videos call their return a prophecy. This man shall change the course of history of the whole world and every man shall show his name twice like the sound of a big bell. A lot of these posts are from micro-influencers. They have small followings and they're hard to track. The Philippines is also notorious for troll farms. And while Marcos has denied using them or having an organized online campaign, researchers have found that he was the biggest beneficiary of disinformation on social media. But Marcos Jr. denies that there's been any historical revisionism when it comes to his father's rule. Uh, there's a lot of fake news involved there. The so-called facts that they quote are not facts at all. He says the claims against his family are just propaganda, that his father's regime brought the Philippines into the modern world and gave it a sense of nationhood. These social media posts have amplified his family's version of the story and convinced many Filipinos that he can bring the country back to its supposed glory days. We did a lot of digging through the social media and, and preparation for this episode. And some of the stuff that you see is, you know, this idea that they were unfairly maligned, that they were the victims, that the history of killings and torture and disappearances uh, were exaggerated, and this idea that they presided over a golden age in the Philippines. And if you look through the posts, it really seems like a lot of people believe the Marcos's version of the story. They realize that after some time, less and less of us would still be alive to tell our stories. They know that uh, by this time, a great majority of Filipinos would not have experienced martial law. And rightly so, our Commission on Elections say that more than half of the registered voters comprise the 18 to 40 age bracket. So these are Filipinos who have never experienced martial law and who are very vulnerable to historical revisionism. And I'm curious, what do you think of Marcos Jr.? Is he any different from his father or what's, what's your impression of him? Well, Marcos Jr. once said that my father is my friend, my mentor, and my God. That tells a lot. In his campaigns, he had always said that he'd be like his father in terms of planning to develop the Philippines. It's his vision to recapture their old glory, and this is the only way to do it to be president again. What is it about him and his platform that you think resonated with people? Over the years, Filipinos have been very cynical about what was happening. 
and desperate as well. So that cynicism and desperation combined for a number of us Filipinos to look for that leader with some messianic image. Duterte followed that practice. Rodrigo Duterte calling on the police and ordinary citizens to kill drug dealers and users on site. You destroy my country, I'll kill you. And it's a legitimate uh, thing. If you destroy our young children, I will kill you. He was able to deceive people by trying to be the strong president that Filipinos uh, wanted to lead them. But political will and tyrannical tendencies are two different things. Now comes Marcos Jr., who sounds a lot like uh, Duterte and like his father. And that is why his campaign, his slogans resonate. As someone who's lived through what you have, not knowing what happened to your sister, having gone through this period of torture, how does it make you feel to think about the way that the history of the Marcos regime is being revised as this golden age in the Philippines? It's, unbe it's unbelievable. Can you imagine uh, me starting as a young man, fighting against the Marcos that embodied everything that was wrong in our system. And now I am in my 70s. I'm, I will be 71 this year. And I find myself fighting against the son of the dictator. It's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. There is frustration in me. There is sadness. There is bitterness. There is anger, all sorts of uh, emotions. But at the end of the day, I must hold on to a commitment. And that commitment is to pursue the ideals of my youth. What do you think is the significance of this election? What does it tell you about this political moment in the Philippines? The election that had just transpired is the most consequential election after 1986. I see the past and the present meeting up. So the past is embodied, personified by the son of the dictator, and the present is personified by the daughter of the tyrant, who is Duterte. And she's, uh, she's, she's going to be the vice president. And she's going to be the vice president. But you're you're still working. Um, I, I wonder what gives you hope at this point. I, I've seen the best of my friends suffer and die for our cause. I think the best way to remember them, to pay tribute to them, is to proceed to continue the movement for which they had sacrificed their lives. A lot of things have changed in the Philippines, but the power relations have remained. Then and now, it is only a few who continue to lord it over the vast majority of our people. I am a writer, I am an artist, uh, I write theater, I direct uh, plays, and I think the best work of art that I could do is the creation of a society that is free, democratic, and progressive, 
that our people deserve. Bonifacio, thank you so much for speaking with us. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So before I let you go, just an update on a story we covered a few weeks back on another family dynasty, the Rajapaksas in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is in the middle of a severe economic crisis, and for weeks now, protesters have been calling on them to resign. This week, Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa finally did. That still leaves his younger brother, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, as the most powerful person in Sri Lanka. And even with this resignation, there's no sign that the protests are dying down. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can find it in our feed. It's called United and Protests, Sri Lankans Fight a Political Dynasty, and it was published on April 15th. All right, that's all for this week. You've been listening to Nothing is Foreign. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald. And our showrunner is Adrian Chung. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you liked this episode and you want to help new listeners find the show, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kendacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.